as well, uh, which of course, you know, we all do from time to time, but I realized that it would have actually been sort of accurate um, because uh, even though my birthday is in actually in October, uh, 24 years ago, this past Tuesday on May 30th, 1993, I came forward uh, during the invitation hymn at First Christian Church of Florissant and stated my desire to commit my life to Christ and be baptized. Um, we had a, uh, a small baptismal pool in the church, uh, and so I was baptized a few minutes later by my Sunday school teacher. I, I lived uh, before that, uh, so I, I actually, so now, uh, 24 years later, I've lived almost two-thirds of my life as a Christian. And the other third, the first third of my life, um, was spent as a church kid who grew up listening to sermons, like I guess all the kids are doing today, um, going to Sunday school and memorizing Bible verses. Um, and so I know verses like the passage from Galatians that we read today um, with the promises that we can be adopted into God's family. And like Jesus called, dad, uh, called um, God dad or uh, Abba uh, over and over again. I've heard these over and over. And I really do believe them, but uh, maybe like a lot of you, I've heard them so many times that it can be hard to com uh, connect with this truth. Um, but sometimes I, I sort of get it. Um, sometimes something shifts in my brain, and I catch the faintest scent, the briefest glimpse of the glory of God, and I realize how little I understand and how much there is still to learn. C.S. Lewis calls these glimpses joy, the briefest moment when something from beyond this visible world seems to brush by our consciousness, and we can feel the excitement and often the thrilling terror of something that is, with a capital T, true. I think it's hard to seek out or produce or even share these experiences, but each of us who speak at this podium are trying to bring us all closer to God and to know him better. And so I want to share with you a train of thought that I had a couple of weeks ago that led me kind of to brush by one of these many epiphanies. And if this little thought experiment doesn't work for you, if you don't catch a glimpse of joy, don't worry about it. But I, I think it may help us to understand today's passage at least. So take just a minute um, to take stock right now of what you're feeling. You can feel the, the chair beneath you, hear the sounds in the, the congregation, the temperature of the church. The, um, and whatever else you may believe in, the stuff that you're feeling right now, we can probably all agree is real. There, there may be some extreme skeptics among us who believe that this is all somehow an illusion, but we still have to believe that we are at least experiencing these things, that the experience is real. And, and also that we are thinking about them, that, we're, that each of us right now, are, that if you're listening uh, to me or if you're thinking about something else, you're still thinking, um, even if the rest of this uh, phenomena is, a, uh, is an illusion. And so that's what um, the philosopher Rene Descartes meant when he said, I think, therefore I am. He meant this, that whatever else we may doubt, we can't doubt that there are thoughts that exist and that we are thinking them. So that there's, some, there's something that is us that is there, that is real. So why are we here? Why do we exist? Why are we thinking these thoughts? Maybe that's too hard. Let's go with how did we get here? We, we can't really know this in quite the same way that we can confirm our existence by thinking about thinking. It would be impossible to, for me to prove today that we didn't all just come into existence a few seconds ago, but we act as if we believe that our memories are trustworthy. Most of us believe that we came in the vehicles that we drove in today or rode in today or that we walked over here. And uh, the, um, 
and that we will go back that way uh, to the next stop in our day or and finally back to our houses. Those scientifically uh, minded among us might also think of the physical and chemical and biological laws that moved us from our beds to these chairs that you're sitting in. If we look further and further back, um, based on what we have been told, we may observe uh, and what we observe in the world. So we've been told and we observe that most of us, that we came from our mother's womb. And current scientific observation, as I understand it, suggests that we're all part of the shrapnel of mass, energy, and time that are exploding outward from what was once an infinitesimally small point. But rewind that explosion back, and you still have all the basic elements of what now is. They're just closer together and in different groupings. Whatever happened uh, before, according to the secular view, the Big Bang happened is not, as I understand it, knowable. But the assumption is that something always was. In the purely secular view, the why of the universe is unanswerable. It simply and finally just is. This feels to me, if you think about the fact that this thought that you're thinking right now is part of something that's gone on forever and ever, it feels to me somehow unsatisfying. But skeptics point out that we make the same claim for God. Um, and of course, that's right. And we probably should understand that this is no less difficult to grasp. You can't find out where God came from because he always was. And the universe is because the uncreated God said, let there be. And somehow, and I admit this is probably because it's deeply ingrained in my worldview, this idea of an eternal God seems less strange than an eternal universe. Um, the idea that the universe is without cause is unsettling, maybe because science is by and large the study and discovery of causes. But we also say that the universe finally has no cause. But whenever I think of the eternal God uh, that has no beginning, that doesn't quite feel the same sort of unsettling or unsatisfying, but it does feel in the traditional sense of this now much overused word, awesome. That there's a sort of fear in that or a sort of realization of like seeing the ocean or thinking of space, that there's a bigness there that I can't quite grasp. I think Part of the reason that the idea of an eternal God with no beginning bothers me less is that according to most theologians, God exists outside of time. 20th century physics has revealed that time itself is malleable. If you studied Einstein, you understand that uh, time does weird things as you get closer to the speed of light. Um, and that uh, most uh, 20th century physicists believe that as you go back towards the Big Bang, time itself uh, becomes kind of unpredictable and is actually exploding out from the singularity. That is, um, to talk of the years before the creation of the world doesn't really make any sense because years and time didn't actually exist until God created them. He is unchangeable in part because change requires time and God created time. I think sometimes when I think of God existing forever before the creation of the universe, I make the mistake of thinking that God was lonely and maybe needed to create the universe to satisfy that loneliness. But in fact, though, we're told that God is complete unto himself. He is, according to John, equivalent to love. Uh, the formulation, God is love, suggests that we could, and we can't as humans, if we could, and we can't as humans, completely understand the fullness of love, um, which we begin to experience on Earth, we would find that when we talk about love, we're actually talking about God. This is good news. This is the idea that is captured in the lyrics of the old hymn, 
Love is Lord of heaven and earth. How can I stop from singing? Love requires a lover and a beloved. And we are taught that God uh, is three beings in perfect communion, defining in some kind of literal way that I can't completely understand love itself. These three entities are also entirely one, which is also impossible to understand, but if you remember that space and distance didn't exist until God created them, it's hard to imagine how you'd meaningfully distinguish, according to our usual approaches, two, even two different entities um, until there was something to separate them. We also believe that God is good, and here good is not just an adjective, but a noun. That is, like love, goodness is in some way the nature of God. This is a little more implied than explicit in scripture, but remember that Jesus said that all of the laws and the prophets were contained in the command to love God and others. Perfect love is also perfect goodness, and both are different ways of saying God. So to return to the beginning, we can't deny that we here exist, and we mostly believe that the universe does too. And our answer to the question, uh, why, is that there is a being who said, let there be, and he who himself existed without being is by nature love, and that the fundamental law, not just of the universe, but of being itself, is love. Coming back to today's text, Paul makes the extraordinary claim that we can become part of this eternal community that, uh, that defines love. We can become part of love itself. This is really amazing, but before we took, look too closely at this, let's take a look at how he gets there. Remember that the book of Galatians was written to a bunch of churches who were struggling with the question of whether Christians were still expected to keep the Jewish law. And in particular, whether uh, non-Jewish Christians had to be circumcised. Paul's answer is emphatically, no, we don't have to be circumcised. We don't have to keep the Jewish law. And then he argues that faith is and always has been the only way to achieve righteousness. And today's passage is, a series of, uh, is part of a series of illustrations that we began a couple of weeks ago and will continue into the next weeks um, that answers the question that Paul poses in chapter 3, verse 19, why then was the law given at all? That is, if God is good and purely good, and if God gave the law, why would the law be impossible to keep and ineffective and ineffective at installing righteousness and goodness in God's people. Paul's answer in Galatians is the law came because of the transgression. This is essentially the same answer that he gives in the book of Romans. If you remember, Paul says in chapter 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was if it had not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting was if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin, sin sprang to life and I died. I, I have a hard time following that. If you did too, that's, I think, natural. Um, but in both cases, Paul seems to be saying that the law was given because of our own sinfulness. But this raises the question, what is sin if there is no law? Um, in Eden, of course, there was one direct command, a kind of law, don't eat the fruit of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve knew good already. They knew it intimately. 
six times in the book of Genesis before, we, uh, before the fall, God calls the creation good and the creation of Adam and Eve very good. So they know, they know good. But when they eat the fr- uh, fruit of the, uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the book of Genesis says their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked and they felt shame. Now they knew evil as well. Somehow the transgression of the fruit, like the law, introduced an awareness of righteousness that also introduced an awareness of shame. Later, uh, apart from the law, their son Abel offers a sacrifice to God, um, even though he doesn't have the law. So there still is a sense in which they, they know, uh, Abel knew what was good. And even though we aren't told that there was a command against murder, when Cain kills his brother, he is aware that he did wrong and he lies to God about his brother's whereabouts. Remember that goodness, as we've uh, looked at it earlier, is actually the eternal loving nature of God that's always existed. When Adam and Eve disobey God, they damage that relationship, and they attempt to hide themselves from the Father, further damaging the relationship. Maybe you've seen in your own life that um, evil, when unrepented, tends to grow more and more evil. Um, Maybe you've known people uh, that, uh, over the course of their life, just seem to get more and more set in the the kind of earlier sins or their earlier um, evil ways. It seems to me that this is why uh, we were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3, uh, 22, God says, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. God in his mercy cuts off humankind's access to the tree of life which would have allowed him to live forever and perhaps uh, uh, become infinitely evil. Later, even with a finite lifespan, the amount of evil that humans can accomplish grows so great that God limits our lifespan to 120 years. Later still, God resets humankind with Noah's family in the flood, but immediately afterward, Noah gets drunk and Ham shames his naked father. There's shame and nakedness again. When the human consciousness feel, uh, after the fall feels shame, it is over generations desensitized. If any of you have ever uh, struggled with an addicting sin of any kind, and I'm pretty sure that's all of us, you may remember that the first time you indulged, your conscience condemned you. And yet, um, you still indulged, and each time it became easier and easier to excuse transgressions that may early on have felt almost unforgivable, but now feel like little slips that are hardly worth confessing. So God gave us the law to remind us what was good. Paul's metaphors all describe it as a kind of temporary restraining device. Last week, we saw how God described those under the law as children under a guardian who locks them up to keep them safe. In today's passage, he compares life under the law to the heir of an estate uh, who must work like a slave until his father passes away and he inherits the whole estate. So God set up the law as a restraint to keep us uh, from becoming too evil until the final solution, until the the ultimate solution was found. Although God lives outside of time, he knows that we live within it, and provisions had to be made to keep humankind safe before its ultimate redemption. Now, sometimes I wonder why God didn't send Jesus immediately after the fall. If he knew that that was what was going to happen, why not just uh, create the redemption immediately? And I don't pretend to know that. We, we can't really understand how the eternal projects into time. And 
But although God exists out of time, time isn't an illusion any more than space and matter is. We know that God exists in some ways out of space and out of his, outside of his creation, but we still know that they have their, they, they exist. And maybe within the context of time, God wanted to exhaust all the other options so that when his son asks if there was a way for the cup to pass from him, the perfectly loving father could say with truth and to demonstrate there was no other way. Maybe humans needed to be trained, as Paul suggests, to understand the guilt that we have as a species before we could accept the sacrifice. Or maybe this is simply unknowable. If we accept that perfect love is somehow part of an uncreated, eternal, uncaused nature of God, there are likely other qualities what might be described as laws in the sense of the laws of physics or the laws of gravity, which simply are and which bear no questioning because they are a part of the eternal reality of God. But for whatever reason, there was a period in time in which human beings had to live before the person of Christ entered our universe. And the law was the, uh, served as the way of limiting the evil prior to that point. When Christ came, though, we moved from impersonal rule, impersonal rules, to a personal example. Instead of learning the nature of God from written instructions, we had the opportunity to learn them from a tutor who performed the very nature of God before us. He lived perfectly so that we could follow in his footsteps. For instance, he was baptized, even though he didn't need to be, because he said he must fulfill all righteousness. That is, we can follow his path and live rightly. The law also gives us pictures of Christ. Paul writes that everything that was uh, written in the past was written for our teaching. In the law, there's the Passover lamb and all the sacrifices that are slain for the sins of the people that prefigure Christ. Or, or think of the book of Esther. King Xerxes passes a law condemning the Jews to be killed by their countrymen. And according to effectively their constitution, these laws cannot be changed or revoked. But when Xerxes the king repents, he passes a new law. He can't overturn the old one, but the new one gives the Jews the resources they need to overcome anyone who might try to execute the first law. This foreshadows imperfectly what happened at the crucifixion. The old law is not canceled, but it is overcome by the sacrifice of Jesus. We don't really understand how this happened. In some way, we are told Jesus' death is a substitution for us, but why the blood of the innocent should cover the sins of the guilty is hard to understand and is a stumbling block for many people today. Maybe it's one of those parts of true love that we will understand when we see God, not through a glass darkly, but face to face. But it's helped me to remember that when Jesus died, the law itself was condemned. The wages of sin is death. But when Jesus, who had no sin, died, an innocent man had for the first time unjustly suffered the punishment reserved for sinners. And so the law itself became unjust. We talk about, a lot about how life is unfair, but it's, never, it's almost never true on balance. Whatever hardships we experience, they are finally deserved, as we are all sinners who deserve nothing better than hell. But when Jesus died, death itself became guilty of taking an innocent man. And so the law had been broken and the condemnation of humankind to death was itself a violation of the law and that by the terms of the law was condemned. C.S. Lewis writes that death itself ran backwards. All theories of what actually happened on the cross, how Jesus' death saves humankind, are really just metaphors for a reality probably beyond that which we have an exper the experience of revelation to grasp. It's finally enough for us to know that Jesus died in our place and that the law was completely fulfilled by that fact and that as a result, we are now free from its restraints. 
That is, after all, the good news of chapter 4. We are no longer a slave. We don't have to worry about mastering the rules of morality out of fear and shame, because all of that's been covered up and taken care of. 2 Peter 1 says, His divine power has given us everything we need for uh, godly life through our knowledge of him who called us through his own uh, glory and goodness. And then this is the important part, or the part that I'm focusing on. Uh, through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. What we need to do now is to learn the steps of the divine dance that Jesus showed us and which the Holy Spirit living within us guides us to perform. In Eden, though we were naked, we felt no shame. Jesus has returned us to that state. Um, the book of First uh, John says that um, there is no fear in love, for fear has to do with punishment. And Jesus has eliminated the fear of punishment. That doesn't mean, though, that we are free to live however we want. The wages of sin have been completely paid out to Jesus. There's nothing left there. And so our shame is removed and our nakedness is covered. Those of us who have been baptized, Paul says, have been clothed with Christ, even though our sin past and, but even though our sin past, present, and future is fully covered, our nakedness is covered, our goal is to begin participating in that divine love that has no beginning and no end. Jesus says that the Son does only what he sees the Father doing, and if we are to participate in the community of the, of the divine, of the Trinity, we must likewise do only what we see Jesus doing. In the parable of the sheep and the goats, Jesus does not condemn the goats because of their sinful lives, but because, he says, I never knew you. They did not learn and practice the steps of the dance of love, caring for the sick, visiting the prisoner, clothing the naked, that would prepare them, that would teach them this eternal dance that they would perform after life. We can seek out to learn this love, though, with the confidence of children learning from our parents. The Spirit of God now lives within us, Paul says, and causes, to, causes us to cry out, Daddy, Abba. The unmoved, uncreative being, uncreated being who, never, who uh, has never not existed and who is love himself has entered into created time, born of a woman, Paul reminds us, and so allows us to become part of the love of the Trinity in Christ. The distinction between the creator and the created begins to break down in the incarnation. We can, in a mysterious way that I don't fully understand, actually become part of Christ, become part of the Trinity, distinct yet joined as one. Just as his spirit becomes part of us, we are all wrapped up in that perfect communion that has no end. We have, all of us, been invited to join in a relationship which has never not been and which defines love. Let it be so. It is very good.